Grab your Bibles, or whatever you're going to be reading God's Word in, and make your way to the Gospel of Matthew this morning. We're going to be in chapter 14. We'll be looking in verses 22 through 33 this morning. We turn to another familiar passage in the Gospels, and this one focused on Jesus walking on water, which follows directly after the event we looked at last week of Jesus feeding the 5,000. Now, this miracle of walking on water... Unlike the miracle of the feeding the 5,000, the feeding the 5,000 was in all four Gospels. This one we only find in three of the Gospels. We can find it here in Matthew, we can find it in Mark, and we can find it in the Gospel of John. For some reason, Luke was led to omit this particular event, um, and our focus is going to be primarily in the Gospel of Matthew this morning, but we're going to bring some of Mark and John in it just to give us a little more uh, details of what is taking place and some more understanding. Um, so let's... Hop in this. We're going to learn six things about God this morning that we need to know in our life and have a conviction about that will give us the reassurance that the disciples would eventually have by the end of this passage. And the word of the Lord says, Immediately he made disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray When evening came, he was there alone. But the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against him. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea. When the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It is a ghost! And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid." Verse 28, and Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. He said, come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid, and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. And Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, and saying to him, O oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? When they got back into the boat, the wind ceased. And those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly you are the Son of God. It's probably more familiar of the reading when it comes to this particular event of Jesus walking on the water and Peter getting out of the boat for some reason. Mark and John don't mention it at all. Um, They just jump to the part where Jesus finally gets into the boat. The phrase immediately there in verse 22 is kind of a language that Mark uses frequently within his own gospel. It means that this happened at once. Mark writes that immediately he, Jesus, made the disciples get into the boat. What it means is there was a strong command given by Jesus to his disciples that it was urgent that they leave. And we're not giving so much detail here in Matthew nor in Mark, but John points out when the people saw the sign that was speaking of the feeding of the 5,000 that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who has come into the world Perceiving that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. The crowds who were fed from the five loaves and the two fishes, they came to the conclusion concerning Jesus, this is in fact the one we have been waiting for. This is the Messiah. And they weren't wrong with that conclusion, but they were wrong in what they wanted Jesus to be and how they wanted Jesus to be it. They wanted Jesus to be a king. Now, we know him as the king of kings, but that's not the type of king they were hoping for. Their 
idea and what they had been taught by their religious leaders was that when the Messiah came, he would usher in a new kingdom of Israel, which would overpower the Roman government, and then he would reign on the seat or the throne of King David. So they wanted an earthly king. They wanted a King David to come back. They wanted a King Solomon to emerge, but Jesus did not come to earth for that. That was not his agenda. He did come in to usher in a new kingdom, but it was the kingdom of God dwelling in the midst of God's people. The urgency here in Matthew and what John gives us more insight, that Jesus wanted his disciples to depart for their own welfare. He did not want them to fall into the temptation of what the crowd wanted, and he did not want them to develop some false belief about him. No doubt the disciples weren't opposed to leaving. If you remember last week, we looked at in the feeding of the 5,000, they actually asked Jesus to dismiss the crowd before the miraculous feeding occurred. And so I imagine when Jesus tells them, hey, go, they probably did it with a smile on their face, not knowing what they're getting ready to encounter. But the reason Jesus wanted them to go and what we learn about God through Jesus dismissing disciples is God is our protector. We see this over and over again in Scripture of God protecting his people. God protected Noah from the flood. God protected Joseph when he was in Egypt. God protected Jacob from his brother Esau. God protected Moses when he returned to Egypt. Even though when Moses left Egypt initially, people wanted to kill him. God protected the Israelites as they came out of Egypt from the surrounding nations as they journeyed towards the promised land. God protected Ruth and Ezra. God protected David when Saul was out to kill him. God protected his prophets. He protected Daniel in the lion's den. He protected Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego when they were thrown into the fiery furnace. God protected Mary and Joseph, the parents of, of Jesus, when King Herod sought to kill all the children. God protected the apostles when they began preaching the gospel and Christianity began to spread in Jerusalem and in Judea. God protected Paul when he sent him to go preach the gospel to the Gentiles. And on Wednesday nights, as we've been walking through the book of Revelation, we see over and over again that God protects his people. And sometimes I think we forget that we have a hedge of protection around us, that God is our mighty fortress, he is our mighty warrior. But the thing about God's protection that we can sometimes misunderstand is that if God's protecting us, that means life should go smoothly. But just think about those individuals I mentioned that God protected. God's protection of Jacob ended him being 14 years in service to his uncle who cheated him numerous times. God's protection of Joseph in Egypt led him to be imprisoned on false charges. Though the Israelites were protected from surrounding nations, they couldn't get past their own shortcomings. David was protected by, by God from King Saul, but he ended up as a refugee on the run, and at times he had to camp within the enemy's camp. Daniel was protected, but he was initially tricked. Shadmach, Meshach, and Abednego were protected, but their protection came in the understanding that God may or may not save them. Mary and Joseph were protected. But they had to leave their family, their friends, and their home. The apostles were protected by God, but eventually they'd be persecuted. Paul was protected by God, but at times he was left for dead. He was imprisoned on false charges. And before it all came to an end in the book of Acts, you can read that actually the Jewish leaders put a hit on him. Yet God protected them. We see here in our passage when we combine it with Mark and John, 
that Jesus moved the disciples. He commanded them to go for their protection. Of course, we just read the story, so we know that his command for them to go meant they're going to go out onto the Sea of Galilee, which they were going to encounter a massive windstorm. Disciples would have been familiar with this sea. They would have known it was known for strong winds. They would have known for strong waves and the storms. There's no doubt that Jesus knew what they were going to encounter when they went out on the water. He wasn't moving them to put them into physical harm. He was protecting them from the spiritual harm. It might have happened if the disciples joined in on the crowd's wishes. We have to keep in mind that at this point in time, disciples are still learning about Jesus. They're still figuring him out themselves. We're still fairly early in Jesus' ministry, and Jesus is still discipling his men. He's still wanting them to learn, so wanting them to grow so they can take on the ministry when he's gone. And God's protection may come in the form of physical protection, but that's not always the case. See, our God is more interested in our soul. He's more interested in our spiritual protection, which is why he gave us his spirit. As Jesus dismisses the crowds in Matthew and Mark and John, he didn't initially go to the disciples. We can read this in Matthew, but instead in verse 23, he went up on the mountainside by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. If you like Bible facts, this is only one of two times that Matthew writes of Jesus going away alone to pray. The other time happens in the Garden of Gethsemane where he goes deeper into the garden even though the disciples were in proximity of him. Now the other Gospels tell us that this was a natural habit of Jesus. He, he got away by himself numerous times to pray, to be alone with God. And Matthew emphasizes he was there alone. And what it tells us about our God is this beautiful thing that we can sometimes forget that we are loved and serve a God of intimacy. Jesus' prayer life is the one thing the disciples asked for him to teach them about. They had this desire to have an intimate relationship, an intimate conversation with the Father just as Jesus continued to model to them. They understood, hey, it's possible for us as well to be intimate with God, the creator of heavens and the earth, that he is also our Father. As God's children, the beauty of the scriptures is God has called us into an intimate relationship with him. He's given us his spirit inside of him so we can cry out to him, Abba, Father. Those are terms of endearment. Those are terms of intimacy. Those are terms of belonging to him, being owned by him and being cared by him. This is, in fact, how Jesus teaches us to pray out of the Gospels, our Father in heaven. Now, the Jewish people understood that God was the Father of Israel. But they did not go to the place of have the level of intimacy to which Jesus comes and reveals that we can have with the Father. The Jewish people, they understood that God was the creators of the heavens and the earth. But for them, he was behind walls and behind curtains in the temple where only select Jewish men could go in and have that intimacy, that closeness with the Father. But we serve and we are loved by a God who is near. That's in fact what Jesus was named, Emmanuel. God with us. The Bible also tells us that God is for us, which means the God that we've been worshiping here this morning, the God when we open the word and we can hear his voice speaking to our hearts, our God is not out there exploring the universe. He's not looking into the depths of the sea. 
But God sent Jesus to this earth because he's a God of intimacy. And in relationship through Jesus Christ, we can now draw near to the Father, to the throne room of grace. We have full access. And the Bible tells us, God tells us, we are to do it with confidence because he's a God of intimacy. Again, Matthew, in verse 23, emphasizes that he was alone, Jesus. Because that's where we got to get in our day. Day to day, we need to take time to get one-on-one with the Father, to speak to him, but not just to speak to him, but to listen. Do you know that's part of prayer, too? Prayer isn't just us coming to God and opening our mouths and asking for things and saying how good he is. Prayer is also a time where we're supposed to be still. Be quiet. Listen to the Father wanting to speak to you as child. We aren't told what Jesus prayed. We could speculate, but that's not the point. The point is that he got alone. He went to go have intimacy with his Father. And the promise of Scripture is God's children, we can do the same thing. That's why Jesus modeled it. That's why he taught it. As Jesus is up on the mountain, the attention, and all three of the Gospels record this event, shift now to the disciples. And they're out on the Sea of Galilee. That's the sea that is mentioned. It's uh, the sea they had just crossed when they were trying to get away from the crowds, and now they're crossing back again uh, to get away from the crowds. Now, disciples are in the boat. We have to keep, you know, Jesus was alone. The disciples were not alone. There are 12 of them. And there are at least four of them that were trained fishermen. These four individuals who had fishing as their background, they were familiar with the type of weather, weather patterns that would come upon the sea and on these waters. However long Jesus was up on the mountain praying, the disciples made it a good distance to wherever they were going, or wherever they intended to go at least. Matthew just says, that they were a long way from the land there in verse 24. The Gospel of John, though, tells us precisely how far they were and that they were about three or four miles out. Now, the Sea of Galilee is only about four or five miles wide. So they're either getting close to where they were intending to go or because the wind was so strong, it had blown them off course. And to add to this crazy situation... We know that Jesus just fed the crowd when the sun was beginning to set. If you remember last week, the disciples said, send them away. The day is coming to a close. And so the sun was beginning to set before Jesus even did the miracle. And now we're told here in Matthew that it has now become the fourth watch of the night. This is typically how the Gospels tell time. And they don't always give us a specific time of day or anything like that. But it's a Roman time system. The Jewish system divided the day and the night into three watches. The Roman time system divided the day and the night into four different watches, three hours each. And so this being the fourth watch of the night, meaning it's the last watch within the Roman time system, places about 3 to 6 a.m. And we could probably move it closer to about 5 to 6 a.m. because the disciples are on the water. They're able to make out this figure coming towards them. So there's some sort of light that is being cast, some sort of daylight being initiated that they're able to say, okay, there's something out there. The Gospels make sure we as a reader can understand the situation the disciples are going through. Mark says that they were making headway painfully. 
for the wind was against them. John tells us that the sea became rough because of a strong wind. Matthew points out that the boat was being beaten by the waves. And these are real people, so we need to understand what they have just gone through. And so when we read all the Gospels and we read them in order instead of breaking up in verses and chapters, we can go back. The disciples just got back to Jesus after he sent them out for the very first time, two by two. So they were out doing ministry. That's how the feeding of the 5,000 passage starts. They came to tell Jesus all that they had said and done. They were excited. Then Jesus says, let's get away and get some rest. But the crowds rushed to where they were coming ashore so they could not get away. And so they're getting aggravated. They're getting frustrated. And then Jesus, again, commands them to go away onto the sea, and they encounter this strong windstorm. I imagine the disciples have been up for at least 24 hours, maybe even more. So they're tired. They're probably weak. They probably just want to go home. You read about the waves beating against the boat. It's, it's highly probable that this boat was taking on water. And then as they're going through all this and their adrenaline is rushing to simply stay alive, they look out onto the water and they see something. And I imagine if you've ever been scared, that's exactly how the disciples felt in that moment. The hearts dropped, started beating even harder. It's funny about the situation, the Gospel of Mark, when he's writing and letting us know about the situation. The Gospel of Mark reports out that it was not Jesus' intention to go to disciples or even to help them out. Mark says that he meant to pass them by, meaning Jesus was walking on the water. He sees, he's obviously going with the waves. He sees the boats. He sees the disciples are having a really rough go of it, but Jesus' mind is like, yeah, they got it. I'll see him on the other side. They'll be fine. The problem is they see him, but they don't know that it is him. And so their only response is, it's a ghost, verse 26. Now, before we start jumping to any conclusion about ghosts and about them being real, you need to understand the meaning of that word from the Greek. The word ghost in the Greek stands for an apparition, which means something of unnatural vision and explanation. It means they saw a form on the water and they couldn't understand what they were seeing, but they could tell it was some sort of figure. That's what the word ghost means, which means, makes sense because, you know, they'd never seen someone walk on the water. And so Jesus has to give them another lesson. Verse 27, he speaks out from the waves and the wind, speaks to their fear, take heart. It is I, do not be afraid. The phrase, take heart, as Jesus is telling his disciples, find your courage. When he says, it is I, it actually literally should be read, I am. But that doesn't make grammatical English. So he's saying, find your courage, I am which is the covenantal name of God given in the book of Exodus when God spoke to Moses through the burning bush. Because he was with them. Because he was the covenant God in the flesh and the God of all creation. He tells them to lose your fear. Do not be afraid. And reveals something to them that we need to understand about God is that God is our comforter. The psalmist understood this. 
Probably one of the most popular psalms that most people know is Psalm 23. And it begins that saying that the Lord is my shepherd. And the psalmist who wrote that understood that God being a shepherd, he understood that God was with him. And so he didn't have to fear no matter the places he went or the circumstances he found himself in because he understood that God was with him to protect him and to comfort him. The disciples would have known this psalm, but like us, sometimes we get a little hectic. We tend to forget God's promises found in his word. We tend to look at the obvious in front of us and forget the promises that God has spoken to us. It's at this point in time that Matthew adds a detail that is not found in Mark or John. The other gospels have Jesus getting directly into the boat after he speaks to them to take heart. I am, do not be afraid. But Matthew points out, Good old Peter that we love so much, who loves to say whatever on the top of his mouth, makes a request to Jesus to come out on the water. Now, one reason that Matthew probably inserts this and the other Gospels don't is because we have to remember that we say, you know, the Gospel of Matthew, these are letters, okay? Matthew was writing to an original audience. He he would write like we email or text. They were meant for a specific person or people. So Matthew's writing to the Jewish audience. At this particular moment in time, Peter is the head pastor of the church of Jerusalem where most Jews tend to gather. So Matthew's kind of building up his resume, even though Matthew's going to point out some of the faults and failures of Peter as well. Well, Peter, despite just being terrified moments ago with the waves and the water and seeing this apparition, he all of a sudden has the faith begin to muster in him that, you know what? I bet I can do the things that Jesus has been doing, like in the teachings and the healings and the miracles. He starts to get one of the lessons from the feeding of the 5,000. If you remember, when the disciples told Jesus to send the crowds away, Jesus asked or told them, you feed them. You take care of the situation. So Peter's starting to, to grow in his faith in this moment, understanding, okay, you feed them. That means I should be able to do some of the things that Jesus Christ is doing. And so Peter makes a request to Jesus. Jesus invites Peter out, and at Jesus' invitation, Peter walks on water. But we have to keep in mind it wasn't by Peter's power, right? It was by Jesus' power and God's power working through Jesus which lets us know that God is our strength. The thing God calls us or commands us to do, it can never be by our own power. They can't be even by our own instinct, our own skills, our intuition, or skill levels. When God calls us to do something for his kingdom, whatever that is, even if it's working in the nursery, It has to be completely reliant upon the power of God working in us and through us. The Apostle Paul was used by God to take the gospel into the known world, but Paul understood that it was not his speaking ability, nor was his his knowledge of the Scriptures. It was God working in him and through him so God alone would be glorified. When David came to the battlefield... And he faced off against his massive man, Goliath. He understood that it would not be him who would win the battle because the battle belonged to God. So it would be God's strength through David's faith and his willingness to go where God was leading. Psalm 46, 1 through 3, we read, God is our refuge 
and strength, very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. By a passage of disciples should have kept in mind on this boat. Psalm chapter 28, verse 7, who was written by David, says, The Lord is my strength and my shield. In him my heart trusts, and I am helped. My heart exults, and with my song I give thanks to him. Point is, wherever God calls us to do, wherever God calls us to go, the promise of Scripture is He goes with us and He strengthens us for that call. Most of us are familiar, of course, we've already read how this walk of Peter goes. Peter began this walk with a faith and trust in Jesus. And I imagine, I can picture him. When he gets out of the boat, I mean, can you imagine being in Peter's sandals, I'm assuming, in that moment? Would you not be smiling? Would you not be laughing? Would you not be thinking, this is crazy? And so he gets out with all this excitement and all this faith, and then it happens. Verse 30, he saw the wind. That doesn't mean he saw the wind, he saw the effects of the wind. He saw what the wind was doing to this alien surrounding that he was now on. Now, people aren't meant to walk on water. He saw the waves crashing. Because he began focusing on his surroundings instead of on the one who invited him, he began to sink. And his faith was diminished. Funny thing is, the circumstance he was in, it was there before he got out of the boat. Nothing had changed yet, except Jesus was out on the water. So he thought, I could be out on the water. But when he focused on his circumstance and his surroundings and the possibility of what could happen, he lost his trust. But again, nothing changed from him. For him. All that changed is he became more aware of the danger than he did of the one who called him. He lost his focus. And this is why Jesus addresses him the way he does there in verse 31. Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? That's kind of harsh. Peter was the only one to get out of the boat. <laughs> the word doubt, though, is significant. The word doubt in the Greek carries the meaning of being double-minded. Where Peter once began in faith and trust when things got hectic and he realized his position within the chaos, he became double-minded in what he was doing and what Jesus could do in the situation. Fear again took over Peter. He's out on foreign territory. You know, at least in the boat, you're, you're floating, right? <laughs> you may be taken on water, but at least you're floating. People don't float on water. Peter, people drop deep into the water. They sink. And with all the waves around him, he would surely be overcome. Even though Jesus had in, was the one who invited him out, it's interesting. Though it says that Peter didn't drop into the water, 
But in verse 30, he began to sink, or beginning to sink, slowly, like a boat if it had crashed into something and began to take on water and slowly began to sink. So Peter was like this boat slowly sinking into the water, and he does the only rational thing that he can do, and he cries out to the one who invited him out on the water. This is why Jesus looks at him and says, oh, you of little faith. Did Peter actually think Jesus called him out onto the water so he could die? Did Peter actually think in this moment Jesus, who had healed so many, had compassion on so many others, would actually watch Peter slowly plummet to his death? In this moment, did Peter think, he's against me. He's not for me. He was double-minded. He lost his faith in the one he had been following. And so he gives a cry for deliverance. Lord, save me. And that's exactly what Jesus came to do for Peter. Not to save him from sinking into the water, but to save him from his sins. It's what Jesus came to do for all of us. To save us from our sins because God is our deliverer. If Peter and the other disciples thought they were going to die in the boat, obviously in this moment Peter thought he was going to die in the sea. What's interesting is Jesus could have just looked at him and said the words, well, just come on up, right? Just come on. But what does it say Jesus did? 31, he immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him. And that's exactly how God has delivered us. But Jesus didn't just reach out one hand. He reached out both hands on a cross and delivered us. All because at one point in time, we cried out, Lord, save me. I am drowning in my sin. And I'm going to die in this place if you don't step in and deliver me from it. It's at this point, Matthew and Mark and John all get back on the same page that Jesus and Peter get into the boat. Of course, Mark and John don't point out that Peter ever got out of the boat. And as soon as they do, look in verse 32. And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. This is not the first time the disciples have experienced this with Jesus. There's a time Jesus calmed the storm that they witnessed. Remember that story? He was sleeping in the boat, Jesus was, and disciples were panicking, Lord, save us, we're going to die. And in that particular moment, Jesus stands up and he tells the wind and the waves and the storm to stop, to cease. In this particular moment, he gets back into the boat and it automatically ceases. He does not have to say a thing. And the reason that is is because creation knows who its master and its Lord is, just as we God's people should. He is our Lord and Savior. And verse 32 captures what was once a crazy, hectic, chaotic, maybe even life-threatening moment has now become a worship service. John and Mark kind of downplay the responses of the disciples when Jesus finally gets in the boat. John, he says, disciples were glad he was back with them. Sure they were. The Gospel of Mark says when Jesus got in that they were astounded. It's like beyond belief, mind blown, right? But 
Matthew takes it even a little further to let us know a little more detail. They weren't just happy. They weren't just astounded. They were worshipful. And those in the boat worshipped him, saying, truly you are the Son of God. This is what is meant to happen when we get on board with Jesus. We become worshipful. We worship him who has saved us, delivered us, and redeemed us. And the disciples make a very bold statement of faith. Truly are the Son of God. What they're saying in that moment is you are of the same nature of the God of all creation. And reveal to them and to us that God is worthy of our worship. And I know we know that. I know we sing about that. I know we hear that a lot. But let me restate it. God alone is worthy of our worship. One thing I've been seeing as I've been studying Revelation to teach it is in the end, the end times, the day of judgment, all people are going to worship the worthiness of God. Whether they're unbelievers or believers, all people are going to bow down and confess him as Lord. And they're going to worship him. The heavenly beings and elders in heaven are worshiping him right now because they understand he is worthy. And he alone is worthy. Another thing I've been seeing in Revelation, and you can see throughout all the scriptures this, Satan is out to steal God's worship. He is out to take it away. And throughout Scripture, Satan has stolen God's worship by leading God's people into idolatry and spiritual adultery. Satan causes God's people to question whether God is good. Is he actually faithful? In the end time, Satan is going to rise up an antichrist and a false prophet in order to steal the worship of God. To let people not believe that he alone is worthy of it. And he does this in numerous ways. And I'm not just talking, when we talk about worship, a lot of times we just think about singing. But that's not what worship is all throughout Scripture. Sometimes it's just declaring. He is good. He is holy. He is just. He is right. He is faithful. He is merciful. That's worship. It doesn't have to have an instrument behind it. But Satan is coming to steal worship from God's people. And there's multiple ways that he does it by stealing our attention away from God. How many here would want to confess that at some point in time your mind went somewhere else instead of in this place? (laughs) Got a few honest people. He steals our attention. He steals our worship by the time we're willing to give to God. The ministries we're willing to be involved in. He steals our worship by making worship about us and our preferences. What we want. Instead of what he wants, he steals our worship through our culture. There are a lot of God's people are being impacted by the culture instead of being impacted by the word. And they're not worshiping God as worthy. He steals our worship, and this one may hurt some of us, through sports. Well, that's the top priority. God's not. I've seen God or Satan steal 
God's worship from God's people through their kids. They love them with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. I've even seen Satan steal the worship of God through people's marriages. That's what Satan wants to do. That's his whole plan. Steal, kill, destroy. God alone is worthy. And what we learn from this passage, Peter forgot that for a moment, right? That's why he began to sink. And if we become like Peter and allow Satan to take our focus off God, then we'll sink too. So we cry out, Lord, save us. Turn my heart back to you. I surrender all. Many of us here have already cried out to God, like Peter did in our passage, for him to save us, and that's the greatness of God, the loving kindness of God, because when we cried out to him, Lord, save me, he did just that. He saved and delivered us. That's why he alone is worthy of our worship, because he did what we could not do, The reality, there may be some individuals in this room in this moment that have yet to cry out in the way Peter cried out, Lord, save me. And I'm not talking about you being saved from a storm you may be going through in life. I'm talking about you being saved from your sin. Because if you're not saved from your sin and forgiven of your sin, you will be eternally separated from the God who loves you. So maybe you need to cry out this morning like Peter did, Lord, save me. And I'd like to tell you how he can do that. It begins by you admitting to God that you are a sinner. You fall short of his glory and his holiness. There's things in your life you may not be proud of. There's things you're still battling with you may not be proud of. The beauty of God's grace is he doesn't ask you to clean up your act before you come to him. He says, come to me and I'll clean you up. And once you admit to God, I'm a sinner, and you believe that God sent Jesus Christ to come and deliver you from your sins by dying on the cross and rising again, that you could be completely forgiven and given eternal life. The Bible says you come to this final step where you must confess him as your Lord and Savior. When you confess him as your Lord, you're confessing him as your master. You confess him as your Savior, you're confessing the fact that you need his forgiveness and his deliverance. So if you're here this morning, you've yet to cry out to God, Lord, save me. I'm going to be standing down here. I'm going to just ask you to come down as we sing this song of invitation. But as God's people, let's continue to worship him for who he is because he alone is worthy of it. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for loving us and taking care of us, Lord. Thank you for saving us, Lord. And if there's someone here this morning that needs your salvation, I pray that your spirit would speak to their heart and that this would become that day. Father, forgive us as your people when we forget who you are and we get distracted by the things going on around us. But you are a good and great God who protects us, who delivers us, who saves us, who comforts us, and who's worthy of our worship. Thank you, Lord, that you'll never leave us or forsake us. Even when we go through difficult times, you're still right there in the midst of us because you are our shepherd. Praise this time of invitation response that you alone continue to be glorified. Your kingdom and will will be done. We praise in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.